everyone. Duncan Green here. Remember me? Uh, I haven't done a podcast for about three weeks because we had a total meltdown on the bl- on the blog. So there was no point in directing you to posts which you were unable to read. Um, James Haywood and Eddie Lambert, two of uh, the techies in Oxfam, have been working crazy hours and have got it back up and running. So I thought it was probably time to do a quick podcast um, and sum up the few posts before and the few posts after the meltdown for those who are interested. Um, <clears throat> so let's crack on. Uh, first one was links I liked, the traditional. Uh, I'll just pick out one, which is something which I'm, I keep coming back to uh, in frustration, really. So the Lancet, the uh, yeah the the, the medical uh, magazine, very reputable medical medical magazine, has an analysis which shows that tobacco killed almost eight million people in 2019. So that is about the same as the global COVID death toll if you go by excess deaths rather than reported deaths. It's double the number of reported deaths, and it's the number of. Not only have 8 million people died in 2019, but the number of smokers is, is at an all-time high of 1.1 billion. So I think if you live somewhere like the UK or maybe the US, you have a kind of uh, misleading impression that smoking's on the way out. Everybody know it kills you. You know, uh, maybe young people smoke for a few years, but then they stop. You know, it's under control. It really isn't. A third of those 1.1 billion, billion people are in China. Um, it's a huge public health issue. Think how much... 8 million people dying and all the people who get sick cost and divert from health services. Um, so it's it's also mainly a development issue in that it's largely in middle income and low income countries because of what I was saying earlier about the, you know, uh, Europe and, and the US. So, and yet we never talk about it. It's not a development issue, you know, it's, it's seen as some public health thing which other people deal with. Um, and yet you'd think it would be a perfect campaign, you know, there's clearly tobacco companies pushing cigarettes to teenagers around the world. Some of them are national companies. Some of them are international companies. Some of them are, you know, um, are based in the north. Um, fantastic campaign issue. Really important public health priority. Gets very little attention. So I think that's just one thing I, I, I come back to fairly regularly on the blog. The second post was by um, Heather Marquette and Franklin DeVries about doing anti-corruption democratically. So it's based on their new paper for the Westminster Foundation for Democracy. And they're saying, yeah, they just take stock on the thinking around anti-corruption work, which is a very big part of uh, the Westminster Foundation's priority. It's Heather's speciality. Um, and they're saying, yeah, current thinking on this has at its heart a call to move away from unhelpful best practice thinking the donor organisations in particular pushed on developing countries. And that, that sort of best practice thinking assumes that everyone can get to Denmark, you know, that if you just do the right reforms and create the right institutions, you can magically become a, a, a corruption-free zone and end up looking like Denmark. Um, I'm assuming there's very little corruption in Denmark. Uh, do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so they're saying that's great. You know, you want to move away from these unrealistic sort of apolitical models of development. Um, but they think it might be going too far and, and, and come back to a different kind of apoliticalism, which could actually do harm. And they look at three interconnected issues of this other kind of apolitical thinking. The first is people argue on the basis of outliers, in particular, 
People point to China and Rwanda and say, look, look at China, look at Rwanda. That just shows you that you don't need democracy to, to crack down on corruption. You need, you know, uh, authoritarianism could be our best friend. Uh, um, and that the right kind, uh, not only that, but uh, also the right kind of corruption is growth enhancing, uh, which is actually something that Yuan Renang talks about uh, uh, and, and says in her in her most recent book. But she, they say that these are problematic cases to use to make wider claims because China and Rwanda's economic successes are very context specific. China, just because it's so huge um, and the context of the, of the Communist Party's control, Rwanda, because of its extraordinary you know, uh, genocide uh, experience in the 1990s and the fact that since then donors have been willing to pump money in with very few questions asked. It's been a donor darling for the last 20 years. Um, and they say, look, let's not go, let's not fall for the idea that authoritarianism is an ally. For every China, there is a DRC. For every Rwanda, there is a Haiti. So authoritarianism is often very bad for governance and very bad for anti-corruption. Uh, in terms of being history blind, they, they, they make an interesting point that research draws uh, on historical evidence on democracy, growth and corruption, but it tends not to factor in how things have changed. In particular, in recent decades, the global financial infrastructure now means that um, there are huge possibilities to transfer corruption money offshore. So what you've got is a, is a different situation. So countries like the United States became wealthy despite flawed democracy at best. You know, they're very corrupt in the 19th century. But back in those days, elites invested their profits nationally. If they'd been able to just siphon all the money out of the US and send it to a tax haven in the 19th century, the story might have been very different. So yes, history matters, but it really matters. And you've got to think about it hard, not just say, well, this happened in the 19th century in one place. So it's relevant today. You've got to think what else has changed and whether that relevance has changed itself. And then thirdly, ignorance, you know, that actually we don't know if anti-corruption interventions succeed or fail because we don't know how to measure it. Um, so, uh, yeah, a very good academic point, but an important one from um, Heather Marquette and Franklin DeVries. Third, third post of the week um, was by somebody called Ranil Disanayake, who um, uh, is now at the Centre for Global Development and is a really, really interesting person to follow especially on aid budgets. Recently, he's been doing some great work and he had a big, a very long blog on CGD, Centre for Global Development's blog, on trying to crunch the numbers to say, OK, look, we're all getting very scandalised by the fact that the UK aid budget is being cut, seemingly at random, seemingly with no plan, uh, and doing huge damage. OK, that's a given, and I had a blog the previous week ranting on about that. So Ranil has said, OK, but let's see if we can see what kind of aid program is emerging from these cuts, whether planned or not. So he's actually gone and sort of crunched the numbers, which is an incredibly useful contribution, I think. So he makes a few points. One is, if you look at the numbers, aid is now coming home to the primary department in government. So before the cuts, all the other departments in Whitehall were seeing aid as a like a, a, a sweetie jar that they could try and take out money for to for the Ministry of Defence, for you know, um, stuff in Britain. Everybody was raiding the aid budget because every, everything else was in, you know, was being cut. Now it's actually come back and the amount of money going through the FCDO, the, the merger, the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, which is the merger between the old Foreign Office and the old DFID, 
the amount of the percentage of the overall aid budget going through the FCDO is now like it was in DFID in the heyday. So that's interesting. So, you know, that should be a good thing in that aid is now being managed by people who kind of understand aid, whereas uh, before it was increasingly being used as a slush fund. Priorities. So the Foreign Secretary, the Foreign Minister, Dominic Raab, announced seven priority areas for FCDO. Climate change and biodiversity, COVID-19 and global health, girls' education, humanitarian preparedness and response, open societies and conflict, science research and technology, and trade and economic development. So Raniel looks at the 2021 budget because the proof of the pudding is where the money goes. And he concludes that um, the uh, list of priority sectors judging by the budget, shows that the FCDO is pivoting towards global public goods, in particular climate change and health, unsurprisingly this year, given that we have uh, the, the big COP26 summit in Scotland and we have COVID. Um, but it's also interestingly made a big break with DFID uh, priorities in that it's really cutting spending on economic development activities, the last of, of, of Dominic Raab's priorities, trade and economic development, is getting much less money. And I have to say, I think that's probably not a bad thing, but that's just my bias. But a really interesting blog, do read it, because I think it's the first attempt I've seen to really try and put together all the cuts and say, okay, so what's what's left and what does it look like? And I think probably, the, I can imagine the people in the Foreign Office who are making these random cuts saying, oh good, this looks like a strategy, let's just use that. Um, so Ranil might be doing so doing the Foreign Office a, a serious good service here by showing them what they're doing, uh, even if they don't understand it themselves. But that's maybe overly cynical. Okay, <clears throat> fourth um, post uh, I want to fill you in on is the last of my case studies of how in researchers at the LSE's Centre for Public Authority and International Development have had impact. So I've been doing these interviews with some of the CPA's researchers uh, and just sort of getting them to talk me through how they had impact. And this one is probably the, the, the most celebrated of CPA's success stories. It's some work by an anthropologist called Holly Porter um, in, northern, in northern Uganda. And she was looking at, she basically looks at sex and um, sexual wrongdoing and understandings of sex in, in northern Uganda. And like a true anthropologist, she's quite happy with very, very sort of confusing moral terrain. So here's an example, a quote from her. In any given society, there are ideas about what constitutes sexual wrongdoing. They may overlap with criminal codes or they may not. Example, both law and people's understanding of what is wrong coincide when it comes to raping a child. But maybe not if the child has breasts, then it could be not wrong but illegal. Or masturbation, which can be seen as not illegal but is considered wrong, mainly because it is not reproductive, wasting your seed. So, you know, these are areas I do not normally go into because I'm just too scared of getting it wrong. But anthropologists are braver than me and they go, they get stuck into this stuff. But where it got interesting was that Holly's work suddenly became relevant when the International Criminal Court prosecuted Dominic Ongwin, an LRA commander, um, from 2015 onwards. And a large part of that was alleged sexual crimes against women in the LRA and in northern Uganda. So Porter, along with CPAID's Tim Allen and Anna MacDonald, were, were invited to the ICC in May 2015 to talk about rape. 
and in particular how key issues such as consent are understood by the Acholi, the people who live in northern Uganda. Um, so the prosecution team needed to understand the local context before they could bring charges about, uh, about um, sexual crimes. And what Porter showed them was that um, what is permissible in the, amongst the Acholi depends on other conditions, not necessarily about consent such as whether sex contributes to the establishment of a home, whether it provides children, and whether certain customary exchanges have happened beforehand. And none of these conditions were present in the LRA, uh, in the case of the LRA. And so Porter was able to show that the LRA sex was transgressive, was breaking the rules. Now that's, yeah, that, so from that anthropology, she helped the prosecution expand the charges against Onwen to include sexual and gender-based crimes, such as forced rape, forced marriage, sorry, rape, sexual slavery and enslavement. And they beefed up the number of charges against Ongwin, who was recently found guilty, from 7 to 70. So that's a really interesting, not only that, but, but um, yeah, uh, Holly Porter had various other uh, changes on the process of trial, showing that actually it was too traumatic for women to be required to testify in The Hague. Uh, and actually getting agreement, uh, uh, which set a new precedent, to interview uh, women on video prior to the trial. So she, she actually had an impact on the way the trial was conducted as well as the actual case. So really interesting. Uh, I've got one more piece on these uh, Africa Centre um, uh, research cases, which is a sort of wrap-up overview piece, which will be coming out next week. So fifth was... Um, when I'm sitting on in webinars or in the old days in seminars, those were the days, um, I spend quite a lot of time thinking, OK, so what, you know, what am I going to say about this? Is there a blog here? And I was in a launch webinar for a new report from the Institute of Development Studies, one of my favourite development uh, outfits, called Navigating Civic Space in a Time of Covid. And they had big case studies in Mozambique, Nigeria and Pakistan. So the headline finding of this paper is... The pandemic brought the suspension of many fundamental freedoms in the name of the public good, providing cover for a deepening of authoritarian tendencies, but also spurring widespread civic activism on issues suddenly all the more important, ranging from an emergency relief to economic impacts. OK, so I'd, I'd skim the report, I listened to the presentations, and yeah, the basic findings were the, the state, states used COVID to squeeze space, um, people fought back, um, everything moved online. Okay, well, yeah, I kind of knew that. So then I started thinking, okay, well, so is there anything new or surprising about this? And I actually asked uh, a in Q&A you know, after the presentations, is there anything new or surprising about this? Which is a really annoying question to ask researchers, uh, I know. But I just thought, well, I really want to know. And uh, the, the replies are interesting. Rosie McGee, who's a, this super bright, super interesting sort of researcher at IDS, said that, the case studies from Mozambique, Pakistan and Nigeria constituted a concrete illustration and provided granularity and corroboration of what we were seeing. So basically, they, they enable you to, they confirm what you think is true, but they give you more detail and they, they corroborate it. Um, uh, so that's interesting. Then John Gaventa, I had an exchange of emails with him after the event. And he said very sensibly, the question is always new to whom, surprising to whom. You see this stuff every day, but many people do not. And also repetition can build awareness of patterns. Three independent studies in separate contexts found similar points. 
This helps us see the larger part, part picture and that's important. Okay, okay, yes, I get that. Fair points. I, I'm still not convinced though. And I'll, this is why. I think, sure, surprise can be overrated. You know, research should be about knowledge, not novelty necessarily. But, you know, a lack of surprise or novelty is an issue for several reasons. One is it makes it much harder to actually communicate it. If you've got nothing new or uh, surprising to say, far fewer people are going to read your findings, your conclusions, especially non-academics. So journalists, if you go to a journalist and say, I've just done a piece of research which confirms what we knew already, the journalist will wonder why on earth you're talking to them. There's a reason why news is called news, right? Um, but that's true of NGOs as well. You know, you're skimming through your RSS feed or whatever your timeline has. If something says, you know, inequality is bad, you tend not necessarily to click on it because you kind of know that. Um, <clears throat> but also, in my experience, you can always find a new angle on something. It may not be a totally new research finding, but, you know, an interesting angle, something which will pique people's curiosity. So I wonder whether... If people don't find that, is it because they're not looking hard enough? Is it because actually they're quite cool about just confirming what they think already? Yeah, I, I wondered whether maybe this is a thing about being a specialist. If you're a specialist on something like civic space, confirming what you think already is a useful activity. Whereas I'm a bit of a you know um, magpie, I jump around and uh, I have a very short attention span. So I want something to surprise me and bang me on the head and drag me in. And so yeah, I'm looking for different stuff perhaps. Um, but then I also wonder whether COVID is partly to blame. You know, that when when I think about yeah, the, the, the new and interesting things I've found in the past, at least from my point of view, it's often actually on the margins of you know, official activity. So you go on a trip, you go out and you do lots of interviews, which basically confirm what you thought you'd find. But then in the, you know, in the bar in the evening, people relax and start talking more widely and suddenly you spot something new. You spot some new pattern. Um, that isn't happening anymore. So maybe we're all just much more tramlined and you know, and hearing what we expect to hear because we're not having that that random quality of the coffee at the seminar or the bar on the field trip or whatever it is. Um, so that might be something as well. Um, so I don't know. I I, I, was, I think the comments were broadly um, in favour of IDS and against me, which is fine. Um, and saying, why are you so obsessed with surprise and novelty? But I think we need to at least think about it. Then the final post I want to talk you through is from Nikki van der Gaag, who used to be the uh, director um, of uh, gender equality at Oxfam and is now freelancing. And she's been um, co-author of this year's State of the World's Fathers report, which comes out just ahead of Father's Day, which is on Sunday, tomorrow. Um, and Nikki was looking at the uh, the state of daddom under COVID-19 and what, you know, what happens next. So she said, research by UN women in 47 countries found that between 35 and 80% of women reported that their male partner had increased the time spent on care and domestic tasks during lockdown. Well, good. I mean, you know, if the man's there all day and wasn't before, you would kind of expect him to do a bit more. Um, anyway, but then they also found that actually men quite like this, um, which is reassuring. Um, yeah, many men say that being at home has improved their relationships. Uh, uh, and she's got lots of examples of research from Europe and elsewhere. So could the final, and so she asked, could the pandemic finally mean dads step up and do their fair share in the home? And the short answer is mm, not really. Okay, so there's lots of countervailing negative tendencies. The best known is 
the rise of domestic violence, of gender-based violence, you know, with people cooped up in lockdown, um, getting really bad in many in many places and in many homes. Um, but also women's participation in the workforce is recovering much more slowly than men's. Uh, so there's some real issues there about whether you know, women's economic independence has been undermined. And the redistribution of the care burden has a long way to go. She has a calculation which shows that at current rate of improvement, it'll be 90 years before men and women do an equal share. So I think she's basically saying, unless we do some a lot more, this the pandemic will be a, a missed opportunity. And so her final paragraph is, our research for the state of the world's fathers reports over the past six years, oh, sorry, our research for the state of the world's fathers reports over the past six years has shown that sharing the care at home is a key driver of gender equality. It is good for children, good for women, and good for men as well. If we cannot use the pandemic to make these changes, when else will we get the chance? Powerful argument in my view. And that's the last of the posts I want to talk you through. Uh, you now won't hear from me for a few more weeks because I'm off on a real holiday, not a technological breakdown. I'm going, uh, because of the times we live in, I'm going to Wales and the forecast is rain. So I will be eating fish and chips in the rain on the Welsh coast. Think of me for the next couple of weeks. I'll talk to you in July. Bye.